Season 5, Episode 2, sponsored by Pfizer Canada. Hello, hello. This is Dr. Jason Lee, clinical immunologist, allergist, practicing in Toronto, Ontario. I have with me today Erin Mallower, very, very talented uh, advocate, and she's done a lot for the food allergy um, community. And uh, I wanted to let her introduce herself because she's done so much, it's hard to know which uh, area to emphasize in her bio, but she is from Washington, D.C., and has done a ton of advocacy work for our community. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. As you said, my name is Erin Mallower. I am the um, author behind the blog Allergy Schmallergy, and um, born from that is the nonprofit Allergy Strong, which serves the underserved community living with food allergies. Um, and we've also started um, an organization called Allergy Health, which we can discuss later, and that's um, aimed at bringing expert guidance directly from those who are most engrossed in it directly to the patients so that everyone has access to the same kinds of information so we all can thrive and kind of live our easiest, most carefree life with food allergies. Yeah, and we were just uh, chatting briefly before. Uh, what motivated you to become such a strong advocate for this uh, community? Well, it began a long time ago when my son, who's now almost 16, um, was diagnosed with food allergies himself. And, and I'll, I'll begin by telling you, I mean, I was sort of a skeptic. My pediatrician was on it from like the moment he got the first patch of eczema. She knew that he looked like a pretty allergic kid. He was covered in eczema from head to toe. And, and later, um, around eight or nine months, started having pretty severe asthma attacks, which is really frightening in a, in a young infant. Um, and even so, as we were introducing first foods, and this is of course 16 years ago when there was very different guidance about delaying foods, which now um, that guidance is blissfully changed to help prevent the food allergies. So um, something worth noting. But at that time, um, she had us avoid a number of different foods with the idea that that would strengthen his immune system at the time. This has all been reversed um, and make him less allergic. And I thought, this is ridiculous. He's probably not allergic to any of this. Who knows anybody with a food allergy? <laughs> I'm laughing now because of course we know that one in 13 kids do have a food allergy and one in 10 adults have a food allergy. So we know lots of people with food allergies, but um, as it turns out, we did do a panel test after he had another um, severe asthma attack and he was allergic to eight different of eight different foods. All of them are main food groups, by the way, um, and as well as some environmental allergies. And so I began to try to do research for myself. And I figured if I was taking the time to do it for myself, then I ought to just share it so that the next parent trying to do the exact same research in their exact same way could be saved some time. Um, and so that's how Allergy Schmallergy was born. It was born of the philosophy that probably there are lots of simple solutions to overcome what seem like you know, humongous obstacles in the food allergy space to help your children live normal lives, um, help yourself if you're the patient, live a normal life um, and grow up with some confidence and, and healthy attitude towards this condition. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that uh, asthma is actually one of the biggest risk factors for having more severe food allergic reactions. And is, is that kind of how your son presented you need a food and have an asthma exacerbation or asthma predominant reactions? His, his, um, Asthma had appeared to be separate from his food allergies primarily, but I did learn very early on and I was so thankful to get that information, which is that it made his potential reactions all the more dangerous, which meant we had to take this so seriously right from the start and really get it right. And um, something, and we did have a reaction by the way, where it was asthma 
exacerbated. Um, and I mean, he turned blue and it was absolutely frightening. So that asthma part is so serious and it cannot be underestimated. Um, but anyone can have a very severe allergic reaction regardless of the asthma. That just makes you, you know, at double risk for that. Um, but uh, yeah, but it, I mean, the asthma part it is, is really something to pay attention to. When he started getting the asthma, our pediatrician really perked up and that's when she ordered the panel test to make sure to check his food allergies, which again, I was, I was still shocked, even though all the symptoms really did present themselves. You know, I look back and it was also obvious. And yet um, I was still so surprised when he came back allergic to just everything. So, and the other thing that's worth noting is that when you get these, sorry, diagnoses, oftentimes from your pediatrician or from a, a family doctor, sometimes they just tell you that your child's allergic and there isn't time to learn how to live with it on that phone call. There's not a lot of time for education. So the first thing I know I thought of was I hung up the phone and it was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I thought, oh, I have to feed him dinner in two hours. So here you go. I Here's just the rest of everything. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. What do um, I do? What do I do? You know, how do I handle this? I just got this information and I don't see my allergist for three months and now what? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I, like, I guess like myself and uh, many allergists, we're not, um, you know, so keen on uh, indiscriminate panel testing. Uh, we like to focus the testing based on, you know, a clinical history of uh, reactions. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, rarely we're surprised when we do uh, panel testing. So let's say someone would react to a uh, tree nut who do all the nuts to see you know, what the cross reactivity is or, or what the other potentials are. Um, but I guess 16 years ago or so when this happened, uh, the panel testing was much more common as well uh, back in uh, when you were doing it. Um, That's right. Yeah, so the science is always uh, um, evolving quite a bit. Uh, you've been on a number of, uh, you know, television documentaries like Discovery Channel, uh, you know, DC News and podcasts and other people's podcasts. Um, you have recently uh, won a very you know, prestigious uh, recognition for your work. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I'd be excited to tell you. And I have to say, it's such a funny thing because it's not even on my bucket list. And here it happened in the middle of a pandemic. It was the bright spot in the middle of our pandemic. But um, a couple of years ago, we began working with a number of other food allergy organizations head by, headed by End Allergies Together. Um, and um, what we did was we brought together these groups in order to create a, a public service announcement called Spell It Out, and it was aimed at the underserved population living with food allergies. Um, our producer, Sammy Mendenhall, who is just an angel and such a creative, amazing, inspiring force, she neither has food allergies nor children. She's not affected by this disease directly. She doesn't have family members with it, but she took note of... Um, food allergies when she saw uh, the story of Elijah Silvera. And for those who don't know, Elijah was a three-year-old boy living in New York City and he had a documented food allergy at his school. He went to preschool one morning and they fed him a grilled cheese sandwich. And they didn't immediately tell the parents um, that he had been eaten anything when he started having some kind of reaction. It looked like asthma, by the way, speaking of asthma. Um, so the parents kept treating for asthma, which they were absolutely correct to do without assuming anything else. Um, he eventually was taken to the hospital and he passed away. Um, and the story was so tragic and so heartbreaking. It heart breaks my heart every time I think of it and tell it. Um, but it inspired Sammy and she brought us all together um, to 
talk about this. So we, we tailored the message specifically to the underserved population. And those are not just um, those in the low income category. These are minorities, um, people whose um, second language might be English. Not, you know, this is not their first language. Um, people in the rural community as well. This is not just for urban centers. This is also people in the rural community who lack access to um, both medical doctors, healthcare, um, food and nutrition. It's really hard to access in some of those communities. Sometimes you have to drive a long way to get to a full service supermarket. So we were trying to tailor it to those communities and we created this PSA called Spell It Out. Um, and it was um, released in August of 2019. And it was a total labor of love and it was nominated for an Emmy, which was so crazy. And in April of this past year, 2020, so 2020 is not all bad, um, we won and we couldn't believe it. So it was just a, such a triumph. We were so glad that it put a spotlight on this message. Um, it really, really made us very proud. Yeah, that, that is amazing. And uh, you know, where, where can I watch something like, uh, where, can, where can I watch this, by the way? I was just uh, wondering. We, we put it out. I'm so glad you asked that. We put it out online. It's at spellitout.org. Spell it out PSA. I'm sorry. Spell it out PSA.org. Um, it has not only the PSA, which we have a short form and a long form in case anyone ever wants to share it with their school or their daycare center or their babysitter or the grandparents, but also there's a long one, which is not long, it's only two minutes, but it, um, it'll give you more, even more information. Plus there are other resources that explain kind of the impetus behind the project, um, as well as just a fact sheet about why we did this in the first place and what the statistics surrounding uh, these various at-risk populations are. Oh, amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I heard your uh, testimony at the uh, FDA for uh, Paul Forza um, as a patient advocate. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, what uh, what that experience was like as well, and why you felt it was important to do. And just before, um, Paul Forza is the peanut flower, very carefully measured and studied in a, in a, stud, a study called Palisades, was their pivotal trial to try to desensitize people with peanut allergies to a point where they can uh, tolerate a few peanuts without having a reaction. Why, why was that important for you to do, to provide that testimony? And how was that experience like? Well, I was so pleased to be um, a part of that, that testimony. And it was really inspiring to me, by the way, to hear both the doctors who were involved and so passionate about their work, as well as the patient advocates who showed up and the patients themselves who showed up to speak on behalf of this product or uh, speak about their experience. Um, yeah, my experience was that my own son was not able to even participate in the trials because he has eosinophilic esophagitis, otherwise known as EOE. I know you've discussed this on your podcast, which I've listened to many times, but um, it's a throat condition that, that precludes you. But my feeling was I, I spent a lot of time um, speaking to doctors about this subject. I know a lot about it. And um, I feel like it is super important for those in the underserved community to have access and have a voice in this um, in this testimony. And that's why I went and go ahead and, and gave my speech. Um, the main things that I wanted to emphasize was that food avoidance, which is the current general, I would say, treatment for food allergies is fraught with problems. And it sounds so simple to just have food avoidance as, you know, so, so easy to just avoid what you're, what you're allergic to, but it is not as simple as that. You have to trust your suppliers, trust their suppliers. Um, there's mistakes that are made all the time. Um, and so it's just an imperfect system. Um, and in addition to that, again, I wanted to represent that underserved community who needs access to this in order to thrive and keep themselves safe. There's a number of reasons why this, the food avoidance is very difficult in the underserved community, including the, the, the thing that I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is 
getting access to safe food is very difficult. Um, not only is it hard to find in the stores for everybody, um, but if you live far away from full service supermarkets, it can be very difficult. Dollar stores, Dollar Generals, those kind of stores, they don't have these kind of specialty foods that you need necessarily. They're expensive. Um, and the pre-processed foods are often include a lot of allergens or, or cross-contamination with. So it's very important that, um, that we represent and, and try to make these kinds of treatments accessible to everyone. Yeah, and um, I, I don't know if you found this in the U.S. as well, uh, but during the pandemic, it's become uh, you, you know even more increasingly difficult uh, to find safe food sources for uh, some patients. Uh, you know, there's been supply constraints uh, with you know borders being more tightened and more tightly controlled. Uh, is that a challenge that you're facing uh, where you are as well? It's a huge problem. In fact, we that's I spent the early part of the pandemic. Um, working with the FDA in coordination with a number of other food allergy organizations, lobbying them to put the right kind of warnings out. Um, they had, um, for our, our FDA had lifted restrictions on labeling laws. So they allowed in the early part of the pandemic, and this is ongoing now, so patients in the United States should take note that um, manufacturers can under certain circumstances substitute ingredients in their products um, and not label for that substitution. Um, that they exclude the top eight allergens, which is wonderful. So that's dairy, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, um, soy, wheat, um, fish, and shellfish. But, um, and they extended, there's a few more that they're on that list. But, uh, but if you're allergic to a particular ingredient, um, it's possible that it may not be on that list, but it may be in your product. Yeah. Um, and they, it's, it's, they did it for supply chain reasons. So I understand why however it, you know patients should be aware of this issue and this may be an ongoing problem for several years as we kind of wait out the shelf life of these in, of these ingredient substitutions um i'm told that not many manufacturers are taking advantage of this loophole right now it's hardly a loophole i guess it's a um just a, a change in plan but but that said there are some that do so it's just everyone needs to be very well aware of that yeah, for sure. It's uh, certainly some, you know, extra unique challenges uh, during the pandemic. Um, yeah. The other thing, can I, may I ask them, just adding to that, the other thing we're seeing during the pandemic is that there's such an increase in families in the United States that are relying on um, food assistance. And that's a, obviously a humongous challenge for those with food allergies. Um, food banks are not as well prepared for um, food allergies as we would hope that they would be. And I, they are doing their best. I mean, they're doing their best to feed everyone and they are under such constraints right now. And, and uh, such a, they're bearing such a heavy burden in feeding the one in seven families in the United States that right now are food insecure. So it, it's a tremendous issue, but um, we've also, my uh, allergy strong and allergy, uh, Schmallergy have both put out um, guidance about food allergies at the food pantries and food banks, um, what to look for, how food banks should help handle it, what, how they, what they could do better potentially. Um, and so I, I hope to see them improving um, in the future. But once again, that's another major issue that the pandemic has brought about or exacerbated. Uh, absolutely. You know, um, you, you know I, I wish there was more things that I could do uh, as a practicing uh, allergist and um, you know, are there things that, you know, maybe that you feel that the allergy community should be advocating for more strongly or, uh, you know, things that we, you would like to see changed uh, systemically? 
there's always stuff I would like to see change systemically. Um, but, it's, but it's hard, by the way, it's, but it's hard, right? Because like the things that I would love to see um, involve, at least in the United States, um, the Medicaid system, um, they are way under diagnosing food allergy as of right now, according to a study that I've recently read, um, way under diagnosing it. Um, so I'd like to see them get brought up to speed. I'd like to see them, um, you know, refer patients who are at least even presenting with food allergy, even if it's not confirmed, send them to the specialist. They clearly need that guidance. And, and so much of the U S population relies on Medicaid, including like 40% of children, a huge number of children are on that, on that, um, insurance. It's really, really important. Um, I'd obviously like clear labeling laws always. We're so in the United States, we are so far behind the rest of the westernized world. You're so lucky in Canada, you label for so much more than we do here. Um, there, we're just a little slow to change that. And so I'd love to see our guidance be brought up to date with what Canada and the UK and the EU are doing and Australia at a minimum. Um, the years most far ahead of everybody, uh, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the way I see it, it doesn't just benefit those with food allergies, right? It, it, this, is a, this is a benefit to all, um, especially all with chronic diseases, but people want transparency in their food right now. Um, I think there's a large movement towards that, whether you have a health issue or not. Um, we want transparency. We want to see what's in it. It's, there's, you know, when you think of um, a lot of your snack foods, for example, let's take an Oreo. Um, it will surprise a lot of people when I tell them that there's no dairy in an Oreo. People go, what, what keeps, what is the cream filling then, right? Well, correct, we all want a little more transparency. And by the way, Oreos are good, I'm not knocking Oreos. But the point is, we don't really know what's in our food necessarily and people are starting to kind of wonder about that. So um, I just feel like the more labeling, the better. And again, I would love to see uh, just more awareness on the whole for food allergies and the severity of it so that if patients, you know, particularly again, I always represent that underserved community. If the underserved population has a difficult time um, protecting themselves, which sometimes is a necessity because of the cost of epinephrine and other things, then at least the larger community can serve as a buffer to try to protect them as well and serve as sort of a safety bubble. And with some understanding and education, um, which I think would be amazing at like the kindergarten, elementary school level, you know, you could even just do it right through middle school and 10 minutes of food allergy education every year would be, would go a long way, I think. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, we need uh, someone like you in every school to maybe <laughs> in like, you know, half an hour, maybe, you know, even a half an hour or even an hour lecture, uh, because it does affect quite a number of families and uh, it's, um, you know, if you don't have a child or a family member with a food allergy, uh, you almost become uh, oblivious to, you know, the, the needs of people with food allergies. And uh, that's, I, I think, the biggest challenge. And it doesn't always help that sometimes the media portrayal of allergies is, is, a, is a joke or, or uh, you know, something to be minimized or trivialized. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if I could see a change, if I could enlist a change, I'd want you know, the media to stop treating it as a joke or, or, or movies or film uh, as, as some kind of, you know, trivialized matter. Um, it's on my agenda because when you yeah. think about the people that actually have food allergies and you see patients, right, the hundred year patients, I mean, they're really the ones that they're so strong. They're so tough. They endure so much. They show such patience and grace in, in situations that are really challenging, um, particularly the, in the, with the kids, I think. I mean, I, I'm not trying to poo-poo it 
young adults and adults go through because it's also extraordinarily difficult. But I mean, imagine the impulse control that a young kid has to endure when, you know, the birthday treat brought in, brought into school is not safe for them. Or when they see, when they do watch their favorite show and like the kid that's get, getting bullied happens to also have food allergies, right? You know, and it, it really bugs me and it makes me feel so sad. But I am seeing more and more, you know, I'm starting to pay attention and, and more and more I will see a character here or there that happens to have a food allergy and it doesn't mean anything. And I'm like, oh good, that's good. It just happens to have, you know, Daryl from the office happens to have a soy allergy. Yeah, I no, wonder... I, I have seen some uh, improvements like uh, the Magic School Bus reboot on Netflix had an episode on allergies. I thought that was really well done. Uh, that's really good. Daniel Tiger does too for PBS. Yeah, they did a yeah. great job on that. It's huge. Um, yeah, it is, it is I agree with you on that one. Let's take that on. <laughs> um, the other thing, uh, you know, just speaking with you, uh, you know, uh, just to your particular son's case, he almost has the complete evolution of, you know, the what we call the allergic march, right? Uh, starting with the atopic dermatitis, eczema, uh, you know, developing the probably the allergic rhinitis, the asthma and the food allergy, and now uh, EOE, which some people feel is the fifth step in the uh, atopic march. Um, the science is evolving, as you know, Erin, in, in this area and our understanding of the immune dysregulation involved. Um, it, is, is it difficult, like I, in Canada, uh, at least where I practice in my jurisdiction, um, it is sometimes very challenging to find uh, an allergist that you know, knows about all of the conditions very well to the point where they can single-handedly manage all the, uh, all the this whole uh, cascade of events that occurs. Uh, do, do people in the U.S. with your healthcare have difficulty finding that as well or navigating that? Uh, I, yeah, I find that it is difficult. I, I find that, um, and by the way, the allergists are very well informed and, and up to date, but it is a challenge because these cross with other specialties, right? So EOE is a cross with um, gastroenterology and asthma has a cross, you know, with pulmonology. And so, and of course, eczema with dermatology. So there's quite a lot to know. Um, I do, I always am marveled by allergists and the breadth of what you guys need to know in order to treat your patients effectively. Um, but yeah, no, it is a little difficult. Um, we've been lucky with our doctor who has at least guided us. And when he doesn't know the most, for example, EOE was really a, a hard one because it's still a pr pretty new diagnosis. Um, I feel like it's gained a lot of ground in the last five years, but when Miles was first, my son was first diagnosed, um, there wasn't a lot known about it. Um, he did, he sent us to somebody else that knew more. And I'm always thankful when someone says, this is not, this is where my knowledge ends and someone else's is gonna begin. Um, and I also appreciate a team approach. So my allergist, for example, did work with our gastroenterologist to come up with a treatment plan for the EOE um, and ditto for the, um, the asthma side of things, which was really helpful. But yeah, it's hard to find someone that knows or is, is well-versed in all of that. So you do find yourself bopping around depending on what your sort of problem of the day is. <laughs> yeah, no, we have that issue here too. Uh, so it's kind of like these informal networks that I have. Uh, with uh, colleagues, essentially I've gone to medical school with who are in GI or respirology or uh, one of the other subspecialties like Durham. And the, the team-based approach is good. So no one person can do or, or even do any, everything. For that so, yeah. Um, yeah, I did just kind of wonder how, how that works in the U.S. as well, if it's the same kind yeah. of issues that we have or if it's maybe uh, a better network because you may belong to 
uh, like, you know, yeah, it's such a challenge. It's such a challenge. And um, like I said, the team-based approach is what I value the absolute most. Um, I apologize for this. Someone's interrupting me. Um, but um, no, I value that so much because I know that we have, you know, look, more, more heads on this problem, the better in my mind. So I always appreciate that. And these informal networks really do work well. Um, we've had great success with that. I've had it myself in unrelated, you know, unrelated to allergy, um, these team approaches. And it's always, well, it's always appreciated, you know, because you want to get to the underlying issue and you want to kind of get a return to normal as much as possible and a return to control as much as possible. And I think the more minds that are on it, the more, you know, in-depth your knowledge is, the better, you know, patient care we can get, which we so appreciate all of us. So it's really important. We really enjoy that. So I, we appreciate your informal networks. Keep them going. <laughs> Just before uh, we go, tell me about your latest thing, the uh, Food Allergy Collaborative. Uh, what's that about? And what are you uh, hoping to accomplish with that? The Food Allergy Collaborative, I'm so excited about. It's a collaboration between several food allergy organizations and all really all the major ones um, in the United States. So this is um, with FAIR, the Food Allergy Education and Research, with the uh, Allergy and Asthma Foundation of America, with the Asthma Network, as well as many others. Um, and we have brought everyone together at the same table for the same common goal. We're, we all recognize that we're all working towards the same common goal with maybe slightly different constituencies and slightly different um, you know, ways to handle ourselves. But um, so what we do is we come together and we are working on bigger picture issues for the greater good. Um, right now we're putting together a uh, patient-focused drug development meeting that we're bringing to the FDA. This allows the FDA in the United States to get the understanding of what the patient experience is with food allergies, but not just what the patient experience is day to day, but what they're also willing to, um, what their biggest challenges are and what they're willing to endure when it comes to treatment options. And this should open up a pipeline and, and fast track future treatments that come before the FDA. Um, we found with Palforzia, for example, that they um, initially had wanted to maybe shelve it because it came with the risk of increased anaphylaxis. Well, yeah, of course it does. You're feeding someone their allergen. Of course, there's an extra risk, but patients were willing to endure that risk knowing that it was medically supervised um, because they wanted to overcome and desensitize to their allergen and live a more normal life, a more carefree life. Um, so that's what we're bringing together. We are also tackling things like um, labeling laws in the United States and precautionary labels. We, we've taken note of what Canada is doing. Thank you very much for coming first on that one too. Um, and trying to add kind of a more uniform precautionary label, education pieces, advocacy. We've done a number of advocacy pieces, including some of the stuff during the pandemic together. Um, and we, we, we're a stronger voice when it's, you know, not just one patient organization, but 11, you know, so it's, it's, it's become quite a force and we're bringing in international um, members as well so that we can benefit from everyone's expertise and experience and, um, and perspective, you know, it's, it is different everywhere. So it's very, it's going to be really interesting and enriching and hopefully it will better the lives of patients um, around the world. That's what yeah. we And it sounds like you're a big uh, proponent of shared decision-making as well. Uh, something that I really believe in, uh, in terms of making decisions around treatments. 
Absolutely. I think it's huge. I mean, I love it when um, doctors are part of that, that that's it, a, it's very empowering to the patient it makes you feel in control and part of the process and invested in it in a different way. And then when it comes on this bigger scale, when we're talking about advocacy um, or just getting things done in general, I mean, you know, we all benefit from each other's creativity, from each other's know-how, from our, each other's contacts, from, I mean, and we're all trying to do the same thing. Um, so it's been very enriching for me and I've enjoyed so much interacting with all my fellow advocates and listening to their stories and experiences. I really, on a personal level, really enjoy them. Um, and then professionally, I just feel like we're, um, we're quite a powerful team when we're together. So I, I really, I believe strongly in it, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for all your great work and thank you for, you know, agreeing to speak with me today. Um, have a great day. Thank you so much. It's so nice to speak with you.